worship that we stand on Christmas Sunday and we think to ourselves either, oh my goodness, four more days of shopping or four beautiful days to be able to enjoy the season and the purpose of Christ. Today we're going to look at how Christmas is not the historical story, but that Christmas is your story. Part of me, I wish I could do a debrief with everybody on a Sunday morning to find out how you all doing. Maybe climb into your journal a little bit. Maybe you're running at a pretty fast pace. Maybe you've experienced some extreme highs recently in your life. Maybe you've experienced some lows, maybe some of the lowest lows, I don't know. But this Christmas season is a season of gift to you from God because it's your story. And we're going to try to unpack it in sort of an untraditional kind of way for a Sunday morning, at least as it references the text that we're going to use. But here's a question I have to you. Do you think that it's possible for God to love you more than you love other people? Do you think it's possible for God to love you more than you love any other person, maybe your spouse, maybe a child? Do you think that capacity that you have and that sacrificial effort that you give to love another person, do you think it's possible for God to love you more? Now, cognitively, we think, sure, especially if you've been around church and you're a Christ follower through the years, like, well, yeah, that would make sense that God could love us more than we could love other people. But we may know that with our mind, but we may not experience it with our life and with our heart. This Christmas season is your story for you to experience God's love that's beyond even the ability we have to love others. You know, um, we have four children in our home. First three biological boys. We decided because of the chances of trying to get a girl and because of some uh, uh, repairing kind of surgery that we, uh, that with Melissa that we weren't able to have another child. And we chose before we stepped into um, that final decision that we would adopt. And so we began to have our wheels spin about adoption. Would it be a domestic adoption? Would it be an international adoption? And we chose international adoption. And so we started to go down this path, and some of you have been down this path, and some of you maybe are contemplating the path, but the path towards adoption is a pretty big deal. And it takes a lot of effort, sometimes a lot of sacrifice, you have uh, home studies to do, and they've got to check you out to make sure you're a good person and uh, that you're going to be able to be a provider. You've got to be able to get your financial resources together. And I remember when uh, we uh, first got the picture of the little girl that we would adopt, Grace, our hearts began to do what? Immediately bond and have an attachment to this person that we had never met. This person who was only a few months old, this little girl that was a far away in another country in China. And so we put our resources together and we made the plane trip and we went with a group of people and we made some rounds in China. And uh, we finally got to the Providence area, Providence area where uh, we would be able to adopt her. 
and they brought her into the room. She was screaming. <laughs> Quite a traumatic thing. Fifteen months old she was. But as we took her in her arms, what is that? It's love. We are not mechanical beings. And love comes from our heart to be able to bond and embrace someone who we've never known. And so we adopted Grace. And we brought Grace back, and one of the exciting things was to see how others who had been praying for us in our church and our extended families, how they immediately did what? They bonded, and they embraced her. Here's a picture of her grandparents on Melissa's side. She was like a, she'd been adopted for about a month right there. She's waving hi to all of you. And you guys know our Grace today, and don't say much to her because she'd be really embarrassed that I used her today. I did ask for permission. She turns 12 uh, here next week, and uh, we are going to celebrate that with extended family. Um, but what is it that causes us to bond? It's that we are made in the image of God, and we have the capacity to love, and you have the capacity to love other people. There's people in this very room that you've chosen to love, and there's people that sometimes are a part of your life, and then because of travel plans, transitions in life, they depart, and it's hard because we have this great capacity to love. But that ability to love is what you need to receive and what God wants to give to you from his heart this Christmas because that's what the Christmas story is about. You know, we're going to come circle back around to that. The whole understanding is, if it possible, that God could love us more than we could love other people. But I want us to look at Galatians chapter 4. Now, if you got your scriptures or your U version on the phone or whatever, um, I want you to turn there. It's interesting because this is not a passage I've ever used for a Christmas Sunday before. But this passage references the Christmas story. And it talks not just about the details of it, which we have in the Luke account, and we'll be looking at that on Christmas Eve service, but it talks about the significance and what is behind the Christmas story from the Apostle Paul's vantage point. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, he um, wrote this to those who were in a city called Galatia, to Christians, to unbelievers that were seeking out, and he began to unpackage in these few verses the significance of the Christmas story as he saw it from his perspective. The Apostle Paul was not one who physically journeyed with Jesus like the disciples did. But Jesus appeared to Paul after he had been persecuting Christians. But Paul, he knew the other disciples, some of them. He knew the Apostle John. And John took care of who? Mary. So he knew John. He possibly could have known Mary. Galatians was written in somewhere between probably 52 to 54 A.D. after um, uh, uh, the birth of Christ. And in this, he views what's happening with the people at that time. And Christmas hadn't turned into all the spectacle and the glamour and everything that we have right now. Right? 
it was the story of about how God had entered the world. And he was wanting them to unpackage this incredible event. And I would say God wants us to unpackage the same incredible event. Paul was dealing with a world at that time that was very hostile and very indifferent in many ways. And he wanted people to come to a clear understanding of who Mary was and the significance of it. And he starts out in Galatians 4, verse 4, and he says this, But when the time had fully come. When the time had fully come, or other versions will say, in the fullness of time. And we looked at this a little bit last week, right? With the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and and God's perfect timing. And God had sort of picked a calendar spot. And he says, now is the time through all the ages where I'm going to intervene in the world. And I'm not only going to show my love, but I'm going to draw people to me so they can experience my love. And so when the time had fully come. You know, in the modern world at that time, and we have news events going around us all the time that we sort of dial into, what were the news events that were happening then? Well, the Romans had sort of, well, taken over control of all the established uh, known world at that time and had established uh, what's called Pax Romana, which was a, a peace and an environment. They had established roads that could go to all the different cities in the Middle East area, in the Mediterranean area. And those roads were guarded by um, legions of Roman soldiers so that they were safe. Now, what happened with that? That opened up commerce. It opened up travel. It opened up communication, right? It opened up cultural exchange. It's sort of like the Internet. You've got to think of it that way. You are more tied globally to the world because of the Internet and the news. You're not stuck watching, you know, the 6 p.m. national news. You can get news 24-7 or any second of the day, right, because of the Internet. Well, what had happened during that day, there was a time when things could spread quickly. And I think God said, hmm, an interesting time. It was also a time when the Greek language was predominantly used and so there was the ability to communicate and interface from one culture and one setting to another it was also a time that uh, the old mythological gods of both the romans and the greeks had started to lose their luster and people were looking for religion or a, a faith that had some some transparency to it and some authenticity and was real and was satisfying It was a time when the law of Moses had sort of done its work in preparing the hearts of people for Christ. If you look back on all of history, this is a unique time. It was a unique time that God said, now, now. But when the set time had fully come, the Apostle Paul, he saw it, he knew it, he was experiencing it. He goes on to say this. He believed that God sent his son then, born of a woman. You go, oh, okay. I know that one. I've been around for a while. That's what Christmas is about. But don't look over that too quickly. Here's a man who lived in the first century, and he knew. He knew the people that spent time with Jesus, and after spending time with them and hearing their story and hearing directly from John himself, maybe hearing directly from Mary herself, right? He came to the conclusion that God sent a son born of a woman. I mean, maybe you ever think about this? You know, the the Mary Did You Know song is sort of like a huge deal, especially the Jordan Smith guy used it on The Voice, and it's just sort of cool to see how that spreads. And if you're following that young man, by the way, he's a a Christian. And uh, 
you know, that song, Mary, did you know, is like, did you know that your baby boy, you were kissing the face of God? And it's an incredible song, right? Uh, YouTube it and, and watch Gordon Smith sing it again. But what if you had the chance to sit with Mary? And you would say, really? Could you talk to me here? You had no relations? Oh, come on now. No relations with a man. If you knew the person or knew the man who took care of that mother to her dying days, would that not impact the reality that God sent his son born into this world of a woman? You see, we become sort of commonplace with that idea, but we can't do that. If you're going to experience God's love and his story afresh and new in your life, then climb back into the world. What God was doing that time, climb into the scene of the situation, how God came to Mary and then Joseph, and, and the babe was born in a manger. God himself, God, God, big God, created the world, the universe, everything, right? All the stars, all the galaxies, that God put himself into a crib such as this as a human baby. If you're disappointed that you might not get many gifts this Christmas, just think about that gift for a while. Can't top that one, right? Can't top that one. God sent his son into the world, born of a woman. That's a big deal. But then what Paul does is he doesn't unpackage, you know, hey, the story I've heard from, you know, Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, that kind of thing, or how John himself sort of framed it up, the word became flesh. What Paul does for his Christmas story is he unpacks the significance of God being born into this world. And he says this, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, what's that mean? Born under the law, Jesus was born into a world that had a lot of laws. Foremost was the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. And it was expected that you would, what, live upright underneath those Ten Commandments, and there were scads and scads of other kinds of laws. Jesus himself was born into this world underneath the law, is what he says. And then it says, under, born under the law, means he was accountable to the law, to redeem those under the law. Every now and then, you can circle a word or a phrase in Scripture that has your name in it. That word, those, has your name in it. He was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We've all... Come under law in our world. And um, this idea that God came to redeem us because of the law that we live underneath is one that moves us to this place of deep significance. Now, the reality is, because we are under the law, there's not a single person in this room, and if you think you are, that's fine, I can talk to you afterwards, who is not a lawbreaker, a lawbreaker. Even if you don't believe that God has laws that you need to follow, we all have our own laws. Some of you are getting ready to launch into some new laws for New Year's. There's maybe some laws of diet, 
some laws of exercise, right? Some laws of new way of approaching certain routines maybe in life. And I guarantee you, many of us in here could identify with, yep, been there, done that, and we've what? We've broken our dietary laws. We've broken our um, uh, exercise laws. Even worse, in many ways, some of us have broken marriage laws. Maybe we've broken parenting laws. Maybe we've broken laws of honesty related to employer-employee kind of situations. All of us in one sense can identify with living under laws and end up having broken those laws. We are lawbreakers. Not only have we broken the law of God, but we've also broken our own laws. We were born under the law. We know what is right and what is wrong. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens, though, when you break a law. When you break a law you end up establishing a relationship with that law or the person who made that law. And the relationship is sort of a debt and debtor kind of relationship. So as lawbreakers, we end up moving into a relationship where many times if we have broken a law, we owe that person. I mean, you could take something as simple as a speed limit, right? We like speed limit laws. I sure do. When people go blowing past me, and I wonder, I know that's sort of like in California, it's speed limit plus 10, it seems to be around here. But um, the whole idea of a speed limit, we would want speed limits, right? So we own the law, but we break the law, and sometimes we're reminded by, you know, flashing lights in, in our rearview mirror. And that moment, when you get a ticket, you realize you've broken a law, and you now what? Are in a debtor relationship with the government because you owe something. So we live in this kind of world where we are under law, we are lawbreakers, and we end up in breaking the law, sinning, and moving into a debt or debtor kind of relationship. Think about it in terms of maybe family relationships. Maybe you had a father that broke the law of parenting in your life, and you feel your father should have done you better. They owe you. They owe you your childhood. They owed you showing up at the ball games that you went to or the concerts you performed at. They owe you. They broke parenting laws. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's a child who you feel owes you because of something that they've broken. And we as human beings begin to carry this heaviness, this sometimes resentment, even bitterness, this unforgiveness in our heart because people have broken laws against us. And guess what? We can't do anything about it a lot, can we? We really can't. You can't go back in time. You can't go back in time and change how you were as a teenager, a rebel troublemaker maybe, against your parents. You can't do that. You can ask them forgiveness, but there's, there's this sense of indebtedness to them. Your parent maybe can't go back, or maybe it was an ex-spouse or something, that there's, there's these issues in life that are there. There was brokenness of law. There's a debt-debtor relationship, and there's just woundedness, hurt, and pain that comes from it. God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem you who are under the law. You who are under the law. Now, I don't know about you, but 
when I start to realize how much of life is about measuring up to other people's expectations or disappointments with myself for not accomplishing something, uh, establishing the rules and trying to get the trajectory of everybody around me, how much we live underneath that, it's oppressive to me. It's oppressive to me. And maybe it's oppressive to you. Well, I tell you what, it was oppressive to them during that day because they had not only mosaics, but they had tons of laws. And they were all trying to live underneath it. So this news, this news that God sent his son into the world under the law made him one of us to redeem those who are under law, this was exhilarating, exciting news for them. Wow! What do you mean, redeem us? Redeem us. Well, say, for instance, you go into a courtroom. That judge has the power to look at you and do what? Either sentence you in a harsh kind of way, or that judge could release you. You're free to go. You're free to go. The debt you owe, you no longer owe. It's done. It's gone. It's, it's been paid for. It's been dealt with. And so as they began to look at all this, it was exhilarating to them. They knew that something had happened. There had been a great pardon that came. And we sang about it with Emmanuel and, and the gloriousness of God. That Jesus Christ, he came, he lived, he died. He rose again from the grave, and through the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid the debt that you and I owe in this debtor, debt, this debt-debtor relationship. And we have the ability to receive the great pardon. We have to receive it, though, right? You can be pardoned but still live under the law and the accusations. You can still live like you don't measure up and all this junk. I don't care how much stuff. You could come up here and just pile it. Say, Carrie, I, you, I got a lot of junk. I've got a lot of sin. I've got a lot of law breaking. It doesn't matter how big your pile is. He came to redeem those who are under the law, and he gives you the pardon because Jesus paid the price on the cross through what he did. And so there is a, a legal position that changes in your relationship with God because of Christmas, is what Paul's saying. And this was exhilarating news to them. And they wanted to, to take it with them and, and tell other people. But here's where it goes to from here. To redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This whole um, legal thing is sort of transactional. You didn't do right. Now this person did right, so you're okay. It's, it's sort of bland in one sense. And you can receive forgiveness. You can receive a change in your legal status as an individual. But Paul wants to go beyond that because the crib, the, the babe that's in the manger who came to redeem those who were under the law, he wasn't satisfied with just being the judge that granted you a clean slate, that gave you the opportunity to be in eternity. He went beyond that because he wanted something more than a transactional change. He wanted a relational change with you. And so Paul, he tries to pick, pick a vision, a picture, a word picture, something that says, how do I get across to people this idea that what God has done in Jesus Christ just isn't the forgiveness of sins of him entering the world, but he has come so that, uh, what is it, what is it, what is it? He's adopted you. He wants to adopt you to sonship. 
so he positions the beauty of the love of God. You see, the judge can sit there and say, not, not guilty, you're clean, you're good to go. You walk out of the courtroom, you don't have a relationship with the judge. But in Christianity, in the story of Christmas, you get a relationship with the judge as a father. As a father. So he moves away from just this transactional idea to the idea of the relational dimension of what can come about. I don't know about you, but the thing's starting to get richer and deeper for me, and I start to experience Christmas all over again. Adoption to sonship is not enough from God's perspective that you're forgiven, that your debt is paid. God said, and Paul understood it, I want more than that. I want a relationship with you. I can forgive someone, but never have a relationship with them. But that's not the way it is when it comes to God. Now here's one of the challenges that we're going to have with this adoption word in our day. I described for you the adoption of our 15-month-old daughter Grace, who's now turning 12. We normally think of adoption as with children. But in that day and age, Jewish people didn't adopt children. In fact, in the Roman world, in the Greek world to which Paul was addressing, people didn't adopt babies because babies end up dying in toddlers. You didn't know how they were going to turn out. People adopted adults. They adopted adults is what they adopted. And, and it goes right. We can go back to Julius Caesar. You know that Julius Caesar, he, uh, after he was assassinated, they read his will. And in his will, he had adopted, you know who he had adopted? Octavian. And Octavian was his grandnephew who was 19 years old. And so Octavian, he, I mean, he got some really good news. Can you picture Octavian and say, hey, you know, your uncle, your great uncle, he's got some you know, some changes that he made towards your life. And guess what? In the will, I mean, you're adopted in the will. You get the empire and all the wealth. You think it was a good day for Octavian? It was a good day for Octavian. But why would someone do that? Well, in many ways, the kids, I'm sorry, were spoiled. And so their own children, and it had to be a male child that would carry on with with, uh, the, the reign, uh, the world at that time, so maybe they didn't have a male. Uh, maybe their children were not able to be trusted or whatever, so they went and they found someone who was a young adult, and they would adopt for them as they are. And so Octavian was given the, um, the reins from Julius Caesar. He changed his name to, you know what, Augustus Caesar or Caesar Augustus. Have you heard that name? That was who was emperor when Jesus was born. And then after Caesar Augustus, he was emperor for a while, right? As he got older and he looked around, he had a daughter and he couldn't leave everything to her. He had some grandchildren by her. And so as they got older, he adopted his grandchildren. And just in case he wanted, just in case he wanted to leave them to inherit all of his titles. Then he ended up, believe it or not, adopting his wife's son from a previous marriage a man named Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar. Does that name ring a bell? Tiberius Caesar was uh, 40 years old when he was adopted by Caesar Augustus. 
40 years old, and ultimately he became the next emperor, the emperor who was on the throne when Jesus was born. They adopted children. I mean, they adopted young adults, where we think in terms of adopting children. Now, if there's anybody who's rich and has some titles and wealth that would like to adopt me, (laughs) talk to you. But what's the significance of this? Oh, you got to love little Gracie. Who wouldn't love a little girl that doesn't have a mom and a dad? But then let's look at your life and my life. I don't know that we're all that adoptable, especially once we've sort of hung some things on our life that are a little despicable or there's brokenness. But God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sonships no matter what place you're at in life. Doesn't matter how big your pile is. The good news for you today is that God sent his son so that you could be adopted as his son or as his daughter. And he wants you in his family. I don't know if you've ever taken the initiative to respond to that invitation, but I'm going to give you that opportunity here this morning in a little bit. This was staggering news. It took things to a whole new level, especially for the religious community that time. And Paul's saying, I'm looking back. I've heard the story of the birth. I've heard the story of the life of Jesus. I've spent time with Matthew and John, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And I realize now what God was up to in this world when he sent his son to be born of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law. It wasn't simply a legal transaction. It was purely relational. And the best way to describe it is that you have been adopted into a family of God. He goes on and he says this in verse 6. Because you are his sons or because you are his children, your sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. There's a couple things really interesting to hear. If you took verse 4 and you took verse 6, when he sent his son into the world, and here it says he sent his spirit into the world, it's the same kind of sending. It's, it's the same words that are using. So God chose in the eternal realm to send forth his son into the world. In like manner, he chose to send his spirit then into you. There is no blood with God. So you can't be a part of a bloodline. But you can be a part of a spirit line. And that spirit line is powerful and impacting in each of our lives. If you need to go, hey, proven Leo Court, I am their son. They adopted me or whatever. Well, you are stamped. You are sealed with the spirit. The spirit of God himself has come in you if you've received Christ. And that is your lineage connection. And then it says, then the spirit who's within us. Yes, it says the spirit who's within us calls out, cries out. It also says this in Romans, cries out, Abba, Father. Now, some of you know this, but the word Abba is Aramaic. And so when they translated it into Greek, they could find no equivalent. Yeah, there's a word for father, but this was a dear, endearing term, a term of intimacy. It's it's sort of like, I, I guess you could say, daddy. 
This almost sounds sacrilegious. Daddy, daddy. That's the type of term. And so when they translated, they couldn't find one. So they just decided we're just going to use the same term. And we've had it passed down now for uh, generations, right? I guess the word taco is like this. You know, there wasn't any word for taco. So if you speak Spanish, it's taco, right? Well, we think taco. Well, there was no word in the English for that. Taco. That's taco, right? So also with Abba, we don't have a word here to translate it. So Abba, Abba Father, another uh, commentary said it, 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 it would be like um, saying, Father, dear Father. Now who also cried out and said, Abba Father? Do you remember the scene? In the garden, Jesus, Abba Father, will you take this cup from me? That intimacy that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has with God the Father, that intimacy is then conveyed to you through His Spirit who comes and dwells within you, and we cry out, Abba, Father. So we now approach God not as the heavy-handed lawmaker. And some of you grew up underneath that God's out. He's watching you. He's sort of like Santa Claus. You better watch his naughty or nice list, that kind of thing. And there's this oppressiveness to your whole concept and your understanding of God. Get rid of it. Kick, it. kick it down the road. God didn't come to be your judge. Is he a judge? Yes, he's a judge. He's a perfect just judge. It has to be that way to be able to have ultimately a world that's just. But his relationship with you is one of daddy, daddy, Abba, Father. And Satan just screws this thing up big time. And he tells you, oh, don't go God's way. Don't surrender your life to God. God's going to ruin your joy. He's going to take you on paths that are just wretched. Friends, when we held Grace in our arms, when her grandparents took her in their arms, the love that comes is not a one of berating, ruling over. It's one of endearing, sweet love. Sometimes there's tough love. And you have to discipline your child, right? But I, and God does that to us. But the relationship that we have is not one of a legal standing. It's one of the deepest possible relational standing you can ever have. And God says, hey, you're worth it. You're worth it. No matter what you carry in. As an adult child, as an adult child, as a young person, an old person, a married person, a divorced person, a busted up person, a drug person, all right, other kinds of addictives, baby, God doesn't care. He says, I want to adopt you, and I want you to come into a daddy-daddy kind of relationship. It goes on, and it says this then. In the next verse, it says, in 7, So you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he has made you also heirs. Why does he call us a slave that we're no longer slaves? Well, the slave is told what to do and what not to do. It's sort of a legal standard. Stay clear from here. Do that. And he's saying, no, that's not the relationship. You were slaves to all kinds of things. But you are no longer relating to God through the law. You have been redeemed by the law. You are no longer relating to God as sort of a tax master, as a judge, as a a rule keeper. You are no longer slaves. And Christmas, 
is about moving past that. And I was mindful coming into the day because, you know, probably one of the last things some of us who have been walking with God are thinking about is where our relationship is at with Jesus. But I tell you what, there's no better week to really think about that than this week. Because your relationship with Jesus has gone into an awkward place because I believe you're not experiencing the love of the Father that he intended for you to receive. Find yourself moving back near to him. If you've walked far, head back that direction. He wants you to move past what you are currently at and move back into a fresh, united relationship with him. And so I put the bottom line this way. Christmas is about God sending his son so that you can become his child. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Christmas is about God sending his son so that you can become his child. That's pretty simple, don't you think? I trust you take this the right way. Um, I've, I've been around a few Christmases. I've seen some of the drift of culture in which we live. And Christmas time draws my attention to the fact that our world is changing a lot. Went to a beautiful children's Christmas production, if you will, at the school that my daughter goes to this week. And um, every class got up front. They did a great job. No, I mean, I'm not saying anything about what happened as it relates to those kids and the teachers and the engagement. But I sat there every class from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, got up and they performed a song. Not one song. Not one song. Talked about the real meaning of Christmas. Holidays, Santa, fun. I, I appreciate the beauty. I'm not a downer on Christmas. But I realized as I was sitting there that we have a very weighted responsibility as a local church community as do all local church communities that follow Jesus Christ. How will people know unless they hear the true story? And the true story is embedded in that. Christmas is about God sending his son so that you can become his child. And so I exhort us as believers in Christ. I mean, when, when we give a passing, hey, invite somebody for Christmas Eve, or that, it's not for the sake of just filling up a room and, oh, Friends, people don't know. Even those who know the story probably see God more as the judge rather than the Abba Father. And we have a responsibility to steward the gospel message, the good news that God came into this world through Jesus Christ to adopt us into his family, to live not only eternity, but to live a full life today. And so I add this. Relate no longer to God as the lawgiver, but as Abba Father. Look no longer at God through the lens of what you've done, but who you are. God sent his son so that you become his child. Another exhortation is this. Christ's followers are no longer slaves, 
the children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of eternal life. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to go right back there. There's a couple hymns, Christmas hymns. The first I mentioned last week was O Holy Night. And we talked about Zachariah's story when the time had fully come, right? And it said, long lay the world in sin and error pining. That was the place before Christ came. Till he appeared. And this week, in this message that God sent his son into the world so that we could become his child. And the hope and the soul felt gets low. That is the thrill of hope that the world, weary world rejoices from. A new and glorious morning. We steward the message. Let us not fail to communicate the message. Even if you're in extended family Christmas parties this next week, Maybe you could say, hey, could we just take a few moments and read the Luke account? I heard one school had to edit the Charlie Brown Christmas play because it ended with Luke. You're like, what? Now, what happens to me, and you need to understand what happens to me, Patty, you don't get all, I, I, I get indignant a little bit, but I'm like, let me at it. Let me at it, man. Let me at it. Did I tell something on you, Joe? So this week, and they may be here, this week I got a call from a mom who said, hey, can can you help? I have a couple teenage boys, and, and uh, their dad's not in the picture, and I, I really need them to have encouragement. So I come in here, and I got Joe. He's behind the booth working on something. I said, hey, Joe, I got a phone call for you. Hey, a couple kids, man, that kind of thing. And they were walking to the phone. And Joe, Joe's in front of me. You know, Joe's got his bounce up here. He's got his worship bounce on. He's bouncing like this. And Joe goes, put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game. <laughs> and I'm like, that's why I got a student director, man. You go at it. And those two young boys, I don't know if they're here. They were here. They were at youth group Tuesday night in this room. <laughs> that's sort of what happens to me when I go, Wow. They didn't sing any song about the real meaning of Christmas. I don't know. Oh, terrible world I'm living in. I go, put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game. Take the initiative to let people know the real meaning of Christmas so that their soul can find its worth. If you start to relate to God as Abba Father, Daddy, Daddy, it will change your prayer life. It will change how you're tempted. And what you do with that temptation, it will change your sense of self-worth when you do fall into temptation. It will change your sense of self-worth about what you're called to do in this world. You change from the legal position of God as judge to God as the, the loving Heavenly Father, and all kinds of good things can come forth from it. And that's where we need to be living. If you're dead, if you're flat in your faith right now, climb back into that beautiful world. Come alive. Come alive. second hymn last week, sort of my theme song. I haven't had a series with a theme song. Decided we'd sing it again. And as we sing this theme song for this little mini-series called The Thrill of Hope, the Christmas hymn, some of you know it, some of you don't, I want you to consider the opportunity I'm going to give you when we're done with that song to pray to receive God through his son, Jesus Christ, 
as Abba Father. You can't cry out Abba Father unless you let the spirit he wants to send into you to be received. You yield, you receive, you follow. He no longer wants to relate to you as a slave, but as his adopted son, his daughter. Chris Tomlin sings this a cappella. We're going to sing it again, sing it out. And as we sing it, I'm going to ask Joe and the team to come. I'm going to close with a hymn, with, with another Christmas verse. But um, we're going to pray and give you the opportunity to know God as Abba Father.